Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is David Sanger, the chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times. David, welcome to Profiles. Great to be with you, Owen. You majored in government at Harvard. How did you get into journalism? You know, I was into journalism before I majored in government at Harvard. Uh, the Crimson? I, I had been on the Crimson. That's right. And before that, I, uh, like uh, so many uh, kids addicted to uh, journalism, particularly in the just after Watergate uh, era, was the editor of my high school paper. I did a little bit of stringing uh, freelance work for a local edition of The Times. Uh, I grew up outside of New York. And then I uh, was a college stringer for the Times uh, as well uh, at Harvard doing some things around Boston. So so uh, I was in it early. I came by it uh, uh, naturally. My uh, grandfather, uh, Elliot Sanger, had been uh, one of the uh, early pioneers in uh, radio, particularly in classical music. And was the founder, co-founder of WQXR, which is in the, New York. Was, or was the Time Station? It was it? New York Time Station. It's now a public radio station uh, in New York, uh, and he sold it to the Times uh, in 1945 for what, at the time, was I think the biggest electronic media deal of a newspaper buying an electronic media. It was a million dollars, which you know today would be considered a rounding error in some of the bigger deals that go on. And he actually remained on as the chairman of QXR, uh, working uh, at the Times till 1967. Did you then perceive your Harvard education as simply preparation for a reporting career? You know, I didn't know that, but everybody else around me did. Uh, so <laughs> I guess I should have listened to them. I thought I'd go to law school like everybody else. And um, then uh, when a moment came along to be a copy boy at the Times, which um, – is as unglorious a job as it sounds, but was even worse back in the days when you were actually moving a lot of pieces of paper around the newsroom. Uh, I uh, jumped at that and uh, took a job in New York uh, as a copy boy. Uh, in the days when you could still be a copy boy at the paper and sort of work your way up to a reporter. A lot of your reporting career has focused on um, national, international, security, economic issues. But I was struck in looking at your biography that you were part of a, a New York Times team that won a Pulitzer for coverage of the explosion of Space Shuttle Challenger. That's right. This was uh, the explosion in 1986. In my early days of reporting for the Times, I was a technology correspondent and I was covering the computer industry in the early days of the personal computer biz, which was great fun because you got to cover uh, – Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all these people before they became so famous that nobody could get anywhere near them. And uh, when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded uh, in January of 1986, one of the first theories was that something had gone wrong with the computer systems and perhaps it had set off uh, the uh, self-destruct mechanism that the Space Shuttle had in case a launch went bad and it was headed to Miami or something. Uh, well, it turned out that isn't what the problem was at all. But by that time, I was on the team. And, you know, people forget now, but the Space Shuttle Challenger was a huge cover-up initially uh, by the company that made the uh, uh, engines, uh, the booster rockets that went on the side of it, a company named Morton Thiokol, uh, same parent company as, as Morton uh, Salt back in those days. 
And uh, they were doing everything they could to keep the world from finding out that the shuttle had nearly exploded on more than a dozen occasions in the past where the seals in this rocket had nearly burned through. And it was our team that was the first that found the this long set of flaws and the engineers who had warned them not to launch. Uh, it was a remarkable experience. It was particularly remarkable to be a, a 26-year-old uh, reporter suddenly thrown onto this team of incredibly talented New York Times uh, correspondents. And, uh, and that, uh, as you say, won the, the Pulitzer uh, in 1987. Of course, the question is, um, how did you train yourself in knowing technology? Well, over time, uh, working on the uh, uh, in the computer biz, I sort of had to you had to learn it. And uh, I've always found that some of the most interesting stories that I've been on that I just found personally fascinating are right at the intersection of technology and governance. Now, Space shuttle was one example. But then I went to Japan, and almost all of the major issues of competition with Japan had to do with technology policy. This was a time when the U.S. was wondering whether it made sense to have a, a national technology policy the way Japan did or not. Then when I uh, came back uh, after six years in Japan, uh, I found myself working on a number of other issues that where the mix uh, is the case. Certainly that's the case with nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, I've written a lot about uh, North Korea and the United States and about Iran and the United States. If you don't understand the technology, there's no way you can credibly write about the question of how close is Iran to getting a weapon or question government officials or critics on either side. Uh, and recently I've been writing a lot more on uh, the merger of cyber policy and dealing with China and cyber threats from China and elsewhere and uh, in my book, Confront and Conceal, uh, revealed the U.S. role in the cyber attacks on uh, uh, on Iran and Iran's nuclear enrichment plant. Again, if you didn't understand the technology, you couldn't piece together the story. Now, understanding is one thing. Um, writing about it is another. I mean, you've specialized not only in technology but also in economics, which is sometimes called the dismal science and it's hard to make a story um, interesting, appealing to readers. How do you get around that? Well, I still find with economics, it's frequently hard to make it interesting and appealing uh, to readers. Um, with technology, less so, because uh, as we have all become increasingly dependent on these devices that we carry around, for better or worse, that keep us in instant communication with the world, uh, people have become more technologically conversant. And in fact, I would say that if 30 years ago, the complaint I would get more often was, you're writing about too many technical subjects and you can lose your reader. The complaint I get now is you don't go deep enough into the technology because the readership has really come up in its sophistication. And I find myself more than once turning to my 18 and 15-year-old sons for guidance on this subject. But it was particularly important when I got to the question of the cyber attacks on Iran, a remarkable story and called uh, about a, a project that was codenamed Olympic Games and was one of the biggest covert projects the U.S. government has run in many years to undermine the Iranian centrifuges because it was the combination of the effort to contain Iran, the computer technology that for the first time 
would enable the U.S. to do an attack against another nation's infrastructure, a cyber attack against another nation's infrastructure. In other words, you weren't just shutting down computers but destroying equipment. And then the nuclear side. So it was the combination of nuclear technology and cyber technology. And, you know, I've discovered it's not hard to get people interested in that because it ends up reading more like a spy novel than anything else. Well, I think – didn't you write that some flash drives, this relatively low-tech technology were involved in that? They were in some of the early attacks on the Iranian facilities. The Iranians did what many American corporations do, which is that they had walled their entire computer system off from the internet, figuring that if you couldn't get into the system via the internet, it'd be safe. Well, you know, you're only as safe as the first dummy who walks around with a flash drive and doesn't know what's on it before he puts it into a machine. And uh, that is part of how uh, the U.S. got the uh, – and, and the Israelis got the, uh, the worm, this computer worm, which later became known as Stuxnet, into the, uh, into the Iranian system. What do, you, what do you use for sources for a story like that? Because one would think that the CIA or the military uh, wouldn't want to be giving out secrets of how it gets these things done. Uh, they're not. And as you've probably read, there's a significant leak investigation underway about uh, that story. And I'll come back in a moment to why I told the story because it was more than just because it was an interesting tale. One of the characteristics of big, modern, cross-border covert actions, whether it's drones or special forces or cyber, is that they tend to involve lots of different players from lots of different countries. This was a U.S. and Israeli program. It was aided by several European and other intelligence services. The evidence of the damage done was found by international inspectors from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. And most importantly of all, the program became public not because of the leak of somebody meeting you in a parking lot someplace. That's never happened to me. It works for <laughs> Bob Woodward. It's never worked for me. But because a technological error was made and the code that had been written to destroy the Natanz enrichment plant uh, leapt aboard the laptop computer of an Iranian scientist who then went home, plugged into the internet, I think unwitting that this program had ever gotten onto his computer. And the program didn't recognize that the environment had changed, and it started broadcasting the, um, the entire uh, worm out to the world on the internet started replicating it in Iran and then it showed up in Indonesia and then it showed up in the United States and other places. So there were thousands and hundreds of thousands of copies of it. So the Iranians discovered quite a, right away in 2010 that they were under attack and uh, it's reasonable to say they didn't think, think the Swiss were behind it. And so I was ended up revealing how the program came to be. But the fact that we had attacked the Iranian program, uh, was known to the Iranians and others uh, from the escape of the worm. And in fact, the Confront and Conceal, the book, begins with uh, Leon Panetta, then the director of the CIA, descending into the White House Situation Room to tell President Obama and Vice President Biden and others there that the worm was loose and that uh, this program in which the United States has invested 
tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, was in jeopardy because uh, of a small mistake. You mentioned Bob Woodward, um, and that leads me to ask whether people, because of your reputation now, are more willing to talk to you because um, they've developed trust in you based on what you've already written. Oh, I think that happens to reporters in general, certainly. I think it certainly these happened. Are, these are kind of higher level issues. Yeah, it certainly happened uh, to Mr. Woodward for whom I have uh, deep respect and uh, – but also to many other reporters. And I think you know, people often say, why do people talk to reporters? Well, I think because everybody has a human urge to explain themselves and what they're doing. And that's a good thing and uh, particularly in a country where we want some degree of – transparency and we want a press that sort of demands answers about why the government acts the way it acts. Uh, and so while people are careful, and I've usually found that people who are entrusted with classified data are very careful about uh, trying to stay on the right side of the line, uh, at the same time, they want you to understand why they do what they do. And the best way to get them to do that is if they respect the you've got a fair bit of knowledge about the subject matter. Do they think at all about if they give you two and somebody else gives you three that you'll be able to put it together and get five? Some do and some don't. Sometimes they know what you know and sometimes they don't know what you know. And sometimes I don't know what I know. It took more than a year to piece together the story of Olympic Games uh, and it took a lot of travel around the world. And I'm sure – that I missed big elements of it. Uh, and you can't help in something that complex and technological to probably make some mistakes along the way. Uh, one day, this program will be declassified uh, the way we're now learning about programs that took place in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, we've learned more about the Cuban Missile Crisis in the past 10 years since the opening of the Soviet and the Cuban archives than we ever knew between 1962 and, say, uh, uh, 2002. In this, the, the book that you've mentioned, The Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, you also write about drones. Um, I think for a lot of people, they suddenly sneaked up and they're used for um, significant military purposes. When did, when did you realize this was a big thing? About the time that we started using them for significant military purposes, which was about 2002, 2003, and uh, they weren't used intensely at first. Um, I had the pleasure of making my way around to the classes here at uh, Indiana University the past uh, day or so, and uh, I mentioned to many of the students that you know, in all of George Bush's eight years as president, there were 48 drone strikes uh, in Pakistan where we've used the drones most intensely now, begun to use them elsewhere. And uh, that was over the course of eight years. Now, we were only ramping up drone production at that time. In Barack Obama's first four years, if you go from Inauguration Day in 2009 to Inauguration Day in 2013, uh, you'll find that there were roughly 300 drone strikes. So a six-fold increase during the Obama administration over a much shorter period of, of time. 
This is part of a trend that the White House calls the light footprint strategy, which is to uh, try to come up with an alternative to having 100,000 troops go to a country for six years, try to rewire it, fail, and discover that you have built up the resentments of the local population. And instead, they have turned increasingly to drones, to cyber, and to special forces. Think of the bin Laden raid to try to do America's bidding without sending in these big forces for these long attritional wars. There are some circumstances where that works perfectly. Uh, An underground set of centrifuges, a living room full of terrorists in uh, Pakistan, a single terrorist living 40 miles from the Pakistani uh, capital without, of course, anybody in the country knowing he was there. Uh, But we've seen the limits of the strategy as well in places like Syria, where uh, the president has been very hesitant to send in American ground troops because the shadow of Iraq rightly hangs over almost every decision to use American forces. And so I think the appeal of using a remote control, high technology weapon is probably a greater pull on any American president than it's ever been before. You suggest in the book, I think, that um, in, in effect, we're almost in a state of virtual war um, when we use these um, kinds of weapons. Um, is that sort of issue discussed it, to any degree in, in White House, State Department, Defense Department, CIA? We are in a state of perpetual low-grade conflict in an effort to try to avoid an abrupt, high-grade, high-intensity conflict. So it's an effort by the United States to use force selectively but almost constantly in hopes of setting aside the day when it might need to use much larger force. But that is an experiment. And anybody who regards it as anything less than that, I don't think fully understands its risks. I think Americans have been, have have now understand this, but I think they've been slow to coming to it because they thought at first it was just part of what President Bush used to call the war on terror. When in fact, it's much broader than that. It's about stopping insurgencies from developing in Mali or uh, in Libya. It's about stopping countries from making such rapid progress on a nuclear weapon that they could change the balance of power in the Middle East. Uh, But like all technologies, they have their limits. And one of the biggest limits is that we are no longer making it a priority for the United States to go try to rebuild nations, the nation building that President Bush was discussing so often about Afghanistan and about Iraq after he didn't find weapons of mass destruction 10 years ago this month. And now President Obama has pretty well gotten us out of the nation building business. That's admirable in that we weren't very good at it. The hard part is your foreign policy or at least your national security policy can be defined by your drone strikes and your cyber attacks rather than by building schools and hospitals and irrigation systems for 
farmers in remote corners of Afghanistan. Do you think they discuss at all the ethics of using such weapons? Well, there are many ethical questions here, and I'm not an ethicist, uh, but two that come to mind, two or three that come to mind right away. First, there's a question of, is it more humane to use a drone than to use what we did and used in Vietnam and basically bomb a neighborhood with a large bomb? And I think the answer to that is, yes, it probably is, because while there are certainly collateral, there's certainly collateral damage, there are certainly civilian casualties, I think the overall record would indicate that there are fewer using the drones than there are if you carpet-bombed a neighborhood. Again, think of the bin Laden raid. They actually thought about doing a drone strike. Had they done a drone strike, they almost certainly would have killed all the kids who were in that compound. Instead, none of them died during the raid. Uh, at the second level of ethical questions, though, is this. Do you want to be in a position where you are always fighting a standoff war, you're never putting Americans at risk for obvious reasons, even if that means tolerating what inaccuracy the missiles may have. Because sooner or later, you are going to end up killing civilians. And certainly in the drone program in Pakistan, there's good reason to believe that several hundred people probably have been killed who were not necessarily in the target set. The third big moral issue that I think comes out of remote control war is that the legal basis for this becomes more attenuated the further away we get from 9-11. So the president has been acting, as President Bush did before him, on legislation that passed right after the 9-11 attacks that authorized the president to go after any uh, uh, people who had plotted the 9-11 attacks or their associates or affiliated organizations. And for the first decade, that was a fairly easy thing to go do. But now as we've wiped out the first level and then the second level of al-Qaeda and those people have been replaced by their drivers or other minions elsewhere in the organization, some of whom were six or eight years old during the 9-11 attacks and it's reasonable to assume bore little responsibility for them, is it legal or moral? to continue those attacks against those people in the absence of new authorizing legislation that gets fully debated in Congress. Let's take a break here and um, listen to some music by Tchaikovsky. What is it about Tchaikovsky's music that you like? I think it is um, how it builds itself to such energy levels reminds me of a newsroom, starts quiet and as it, you move toward deadline, gets pretty busy. Thank you. 
was a selection of music by Tchaikovsky, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, David Sanger, the author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, published in 2012. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. One more question on drones before we move on. Uh, I've read recently about possibility that journalists could use drones for reporting purposes. Are there any peacetime uses of drones that would be helpful? Well, there are a lot of peacetime uses of drones. I haven't thought of many uh, used by journalists, although uh, I've had um, a few journalists um, uh, uh, suggest jokingly that they could use them at various times, uh, particularly when they didn't like the editing of various stories. (laughs) There are many more peaceful uses than non-peaceful uses. Now, you've seen many police departments adopt them. Uh, a lot of emergency services elements have adopted them. I was just up in Alaska. Uh, search and rescue teams are uh, trying to get their hands on them because when hikers or skiers lost in the wilderness set off a, uh, a beeper, uh, a drone could go find them, video their condition very quickly and help guide in help. The Immigration services using them along the border uh, in Mexico. But these are all unarmed drones. And while there are privacy concerns, certainly, about the use of drones, it's not all that different, just a lot cheaper and more efficient than using a helicopter to go find those um, uh, lost hikers or to look for criminals trying to escape in a back neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's when you get to armed drones that people get truly concerned, and that's what you heard Rand Paul talking about during that long filibuster that he uh, he tried. And there, I think there are a lot of important questions to be asked, especially because this is not a very expensive or difficult technology. So it's only a matter of time before an armed drone is used in the United States, not necessarily by the U.S., you mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, about the six years you spent in Japan. You were bureau chief for the New York Times. Um, what made you decide to want to go to Japan and to Asia? Well, this was just after the investigation into the Challenger explosion, and I had been a technology correspondent in New York, and uh, this was the mid-1980s, late 80s, when everybody was convinced that the United States would become a techno-colony of the Japanese and that they had somehow um, come across a magic economic formula that we had yet to master. It turned out we were wrong. They hadn't. But it took a while to go discover that. And it was a fascinating time to uh, be in Japan because while everybody in Asia at the time was saying 
the United States foreign policy, the United States attention is turning increasingly to Asia because it's where the economic opportunity was. In fact, world events kept conspiring against the U.S. really focusing on it. So first came the Gulf War, then Rwanda and Bosnia, uh, then, of course, uh, 9-11, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. And uh, a few years ago, as I was doing research on an earlier book, uh, The Inheritance, about what George Bush left uh, Barack Obama. It came out just as Obama was being inaugurated for the first time. A uh, retired Chinese general said to me during a visit to Beijing, you know, we sat in a lot of meetings in the Chinese military where we were trying to figure out when we would have to compete head-to-head with the U.S. and the U.S. military in Asia because we always thought that moment was like right on top of us. And no one in the room, he said, took a bet that you would waste 10 years and hundreds of billions of dollars and who knows how many lives trying to basically control a Middle Eastern country that there was no way you were ever going to be able to control. But I think the Chinese view was that this distraction worked very much to their advantage. And in fact, that decade between 9-11 forward, while the United States accomplished some very important goals for its own security, did end up diverting a huge amount of money and attention and brain power away from the central game for the U.S., which is how they're going to manage a rising power in China. And we're not very good at doing rising powers, just as the British weren't terribly good when we were the rising power. It's interesting that you mentioned China because, um, as you said, Japan seemed to be a threat economically and then it turned out not to be, especially after the big Asian collapse in 1998. Are there lessons to be learned from what Japan went through that can be applied to China? There are many. Uh, The first is you can deceive yourself into thinking that you've invented a new economic model that will constantly produce 7 or 8 percent returns or growth each year. And the Japanese were utterly convinced of that. I think the Chinese recognize that they are floating down this giant river full of boulders. And remarkably, for the past 20 years, they have slipped through almost every one of them. But they're going to hit one sooner or later. We just don't know when. And they've hit some modest-sized ones. They've hit some small ones. And uh, it worries them a lot because the power of the Chinese Communist Party is very much dependent on sustaining that high level of growth that keeps employment high and means that as young people move out of the center of the country and toward the coast, they can still find jobs. But they're not going to be able to keep that on forever. There's another lesson from Japan's um, troubles that I think they have learned. Japan believed that you could be a global superpower based on your economic performance alone and that you didn't need an expeditionary military capability that matched the size of your economy. The Chinese do not believe that. The Chinese believe you have to have both. And that you also have to have some cultural appeal 
so that the world begins to replicate your soft power attractiveness. So they've invested a lot, obviously, in the economy and the infrastructure. They've invested a lot in the military, although I try to remind people that their military is still a fraction and their military spending a fraction of our own. They've had a much harder time in developing an appealing model of governance and culture. And you see this in the protests that spring up all over China over corruption or environmental degradation. And why you see some countries out to go reproduce the Chinese model of governance, you don't see many. There is still an attractiveness to democracy and individual liberty, I think, around the world that the Chinese have not been able to tap into and probably won't be able to if their government stays in its current form. Presumably, when you went to Japan, you learned Japanese. Badly. Okay, but you were functioning in it. Did that give you an advantage in reporting Japan that you don't have for China? Well, I've never been based in China. Our correspondents who are in China all speak Chinese much better than I ever spoke Japanese when I was in Japan. I could get around in Japan by, uh, in taxis and... Um, in restaurants and talking to the school children who lived on our block. But if it got to their parents, I was out of my league very fast. My wife got quite good. She was teaching in the Japanese uh, universities. But uh, it certainly is a great help, particularly for writing those stories about the wonderful nature of Japanese life, for which I've got a huge admiration. I don't think it helps that much when it comes to writing about the strategic trade-offs of the way we operate in Asia. And there I think you can do that, fortunately, without much linguistic ability. Or perhaps I say this because I simply don't have much. But it must have – the knowledge of Japanese must have helped you when you went to report – what was it? 2011 on um, the tsunami and the the, uh, problems with the nuclear plants in Japan. Uh, The reporting in Japan was done by our Japanese bureau. I was working in the Washington end of it. And it was a fascinating experience because the U.S. had a lot of data about what was going on in the Japanese plants. And because we keep such remarkable intelligence equipment in Japan focused on North Korea, very sensitive radiation detectors and all that, the U.S. had an incredible body of knowledge about how bad this was and where it was spreading. And the Japanese didn't want to hear it. And it was it was exactly what you would have predicted If you had lived in Japan and seen how Tokyo Electric Power Company, which is the uh, utility that owned these plants, had operated quite secretly over time. And a lot of the most interesting things I think we got to write about the tsunami was the tension between the United States that had a pretty good sense of what was going on from their technical capability and a Japanese government that didn't want to hear it. You mentioned North Korea again, um, and you earlier on you talked about some of your reporting on the nuclear weapons program there. 
North Korea is a place that people don't really go to very often. So are you dependent there on South Korean sources or American sources? It is the great black hole of American intelligence. I did get there uh, when I lived in Japan. They invited a group of South Korean and Japanese industrialists, many of whom had experience in North Korea during the Japanese occupation of Korea or hmm. were they sons and daughters of those who did, to come over and look at a big North Korean UN project up uh, on the border where North Korea, Russia, and China all meet, a fascinating strategic corner of the earth. And the, the thought was that the North Koreans could dredge out a big uh, harbor uh, there from just at the point where those countries meet and that products from all those countries would be shipped out. And the UN kept this thing going just to have their hooks into North Korea in some way or another. And we all went up to go see it. It was probably two of the more bizarre weeks of my life. We were told we could go anywhere and talk to anyone. And anytime we stepped more than about five feet from the train we were on, some large guard with an even bigger gun would make it clear that we really couldn't. We had a picnic on a beach one day, and they told us to stay within the picnic area because the rest of the beach was mined. Uh, so enjoy your picnic, <laughs> folks. <laughs> but that said, the quality of U.S. intelligence about the North Korean leadership, uh, about the state of their nuclear weapons program, about the state of their missile program, is actually remarkably poor and much poorer than the state of our knowledge about Iran in large part because Iran is fundamentally an open trading society. A lot of Iranians go abroad. A lot of people come in to exchange things with uh, the Iranians. And there's a big barter community, and that creates a big source of intel. That does not exist with North Korea. North Korea recently disavowed or withdrew its agreement to the truce at the end of what we, I guess, officially still call the Korean conflict. Is this something people should be concerned about? Well, the legalism of withdrawing, I'm not sure you should be that concerned about. I went back and read the armistice that was signed in July of 1953 when they withdrew from it. I realized to my horror I had never read it before. I called over to a friend at the State Department who does a lot of um, Korea work and he said, oh, yeah, we needed a copy of the Armistice, too, and we couldn't find one around here. We had to Google it. <laughs> so I, I thought that was – you know. then again, they, they did sign it 60 years ago. So the know. U.S. government can do it. Students can do it. That's right. Yeah. There are all kinds of procedures in the Armistice that you'd have to go through in order to withdraw from it. And the North Koreans haven't observed those niceties. That's not what worries me. What worries me is that the North Koreans have cut – many of the hotline connections, the ways for them to communicate to the South and to the United States in a time of growing conflict. And that means that your opportunity for missignaling or the opportunity for a conflict to get out of control and for both sides to escalate without talking to each other have gone up immensely. And you're seeing the U.S. do some pretty aggressive signaling itself. Just this week, they sent two um, B-2 bombers 
stealth bombers that lifted off in Missouri and flew all the way across South Korea just to make the point to the North Koreans that basically the U.S. can reach you. And it wasn't subtle, but it was pretty remarkable. Now, this message was not only intended for the North Koreans. It was intended for those in South Korea who were thinking or arguing, politicians arguing, that they need a nuclear weapon of their own. And if they get one, you can imagine the pace of proliferation around the region. It was also intended to signal the Chinese that if they can't get North Korea under control, they're going to see a lot more American military presence. Final question now relates to um, the two books, the one that we talked about more and then the other one that you mentioned called The Inheritance that came out in 2009. That's different from writing newspaper articles. Um, were you consciously trying to think about influencing policy? Well, actually, I think if you're going to influence policy, you're probably going to influence it more by your selection of topic matter on the front page of the New York Times than you are from any book. But I certainly felt that itch that I think all journalists feel at some point, that there's only so much you can do in dividing your, the world up into 1,100-word or 800-word or 1,200-word segments. And while I strongly believe that's an absolutely vital function for our constitutional democracy to operate, there are times where you want to explain something in a deeper way. You want to put its context together or you want to draw connections between events that are happening in North Korea and Iran in the lessons of Iraq for the Afghan surge, reconstructing debates that take place in the White House about whether to throw Mubarak under the bus at the beginning of the uh, Egyptian uprisings. Let me put that differently. Mubarak threw Mubarak under the bus, but the U.S. rolled the bus back over the body a few times. And these are stories that I find most readers have a brief familiarity with. They see the headlines. They hear a little bit on NPR, CNN. They may read some stories in the New York Times, but they are missing the connective tissue. And you can only do that connective tissue, I've found, at least to my satisfaction in the books. And uh, that's the great fun of, of writing. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been David Sanger, the chief Washington correspondent of The New York Times and recently the author of the book Confront and Conceal. David, thanks for being here. Thank you, Owen. To our listeners, we're glad you joined us. We close with more music chosen by David. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson.
The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.